This is Africa Digest. This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, live from Johannesburg. We're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band across southern Africa and on channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Jazarod on the show with me, Onele and Sinsi. We're Sunny Matabula with your economic report and Tommy Pluza with your sports. Top stories here on Africa Digest this hour. The case of the Chadian dictator postponed at the ICC. An analyst says the African Union should prioritize the toppling of Boko Haram. And in economics, Algeria to spend and trim their spending in its 2015 budget by 1.3 to 5%. Sports-wise, South Africa's Louis Mankies abandons Tour de France due to illness. But now with the news, yes, Onele. Thank you, Jez, and a very good afternoon to our listeners. Now looking at your news update, a Red Cross official in Nigeria says the death toll from multiple bomb blasts in the northern city of Gombe on Wednesday has risen to 37, with 105 others injured. No one has claimed responsibility for the attacks, but they bore the hallmarks of Boko Haram. The first bomb was detonated by a suicide bomber at a mosque as people gathered to pray. Another two blasts occurred at the gate of a major Duku bus station and a small market nearby. Attacks have also also carried out in neighboring Chad, Niger and Cameroon. Security is being heightened in northern Cameroon following Wednesday's double suicide bombing attack on the capital of the far north region of the country that left dozens dead. Cameroon says the two suicide bombers included a woman who came into the country from Nigeria as a merchant and a nine-year-old girl disguised as a burger. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Medical staff here at the Marua Regional Hospital are attending to 50 people wounded in the double suicide bombings on the town's main market and Bamari, a popular neighborhood. 90% of goods sold in the market are brought from Nigeria 
less than 100 kilometers from Marwa. Businessman Muhammadu Abo says it is possible the bombs were hidden in the goods and transported to Marwa before the suicide bombers used them. He says the market should be sealed and searched. Human Rights Watch has called on authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo to halt the crackdown on peaceful activists and political opponents. The call was made by the organization's executive director, Roth Kenneth, who concluded a one-week visit in the country where he met the different authorities, including President Joseph Kabila. General Bemuza reports from Kinshasa. The visit of the head of Human Rights Watch has come indeed three months before the opening of a series of elections to be held here. Ralph Kennett believes there are serious human rights problems to be addressed. I came here to address two big problems. One is the, the increase in violence and political arrests in the context of the forthcoming elections. And the second was the, the ongoing problem of impunity, particularly in the eastern part of the country, where there continue to be quite serious war crimes. The death toll in a boat sinking in the Nile north of Cairo has risen to 22. There were more than 35 people aboard the boat when a barge hit it late Wednesday and caused it to sink off the district of Warak in Giza. In an initial report, the Interior Ministry said that 15 people drowned and six were rescued in the accident. And finally, Kenyan victims of the 1998 bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi are appealing for financial compensation from the U.S. ahead of a visit this week by President Barack Obama. Militants simultaneously attacked the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania on August 7, 1998. The Kenya attack killed 12 Americans at the embassy and more than 200 Kenyans. The United States says it has already spent tens of millions of dollars to help attack victims and their families in the country. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Zinzi. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. If you just tune in, good evening and welcome to the show. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazzar Rod. There were scuffles in the courtroom as the trial of one of Africa's most ruthless dictators got underway this week in Dakar in Senegal. Before being adjourned until September, the man in the dock was a leader who has inflicted an array of repressive measures on his people during his decade-long rule. The trial of Hassan Habre, the former president of Chad, is an event of historic importance, not just for one nation or one region, but for an entire continent and beyond. Habre is charged with crimes against humanity, war crimes and torture, allegedly perpetrated against his, during his period of rule in Chad from 1982 to 1990. More than 40,000 people are estimated to have suffered from abuse and torture. Many of them died. Geraldine Mattioli-Zeltner, Advocacy Director in the International Justice Program at the Human Rights Watch, says, If this trial does go ahead without further disruptions and reaches a conclusion, she expects that there will be compensation for the victims. Yes, so this is an important question. Reparations are possible under Senegalese law, but in addition... 
the statute of this extraordinary African chambers where Abre is being prosecuted forces the creation of a trust fund for reparations where money could go from Ethan Abre himself, but also voluntary donations by other countries or NGOs or anybody who really would want to contribute to this trust fund. It's important to know that Abre is believed to have left Chad in 1990 with a lot of money taken from the national treasury. So he's believed to be very rich. Some accounts have already been seized, as well as property in Senegal. So indeed, if the trial goes ahead and is found guilty and reparations are ordered, some money could come from there, as well as this trust fund. This will be an important part of justice being done for the victims. Okay, and then, you know, when Habre was in power, he had apparently received substantial support from the United States and France because he was seen as some sort of a bulwark against the late former Libyan President Muammar Gaddafi. So what is their response to this trial? Well, the United States and France have been very supportive of the trial. They are some of the key contributors to the budget of the Extraordinary African Chambers. I think there's a lot of interest on their part. I think what I want to say about this is that this kind of trials need to be a warning also for those countries that support dictators. And of course, this was at the time, but we see, you know, similar support maybe being given to Bashar al-Assad in Syria nowadays. Those countries that do support dictators, knowing full well that they will use this support to attack civilians or to commit very serious crimes, like war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide even, should be on warning that this could be aiding and abating Uh, very serious crimes and that's you know justice is in motion this is the beginning of a very important human rights process i would say this accountability for serious crimes but this country should be aware that this kind of support should not come at no cost even though in the case of Ethan Abre, this uh, has not led to any kind of indictments but I, i suspect it will be discussed during the trial That's Geraldine Mattioli-Zeltner, Advocacy Director in the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch, on the line from The Hague in the Netherlands, speaking to Josejo Dengake. Still ahead, of course, we've got stories out of Botswana, HIV, polio, and not forgetting Sudan. Right now we go to the DRC. Human Rights Watch has called on authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo to halt the crackdown on peaceful activists and political opponents. The call was made by the organization's executive director, Roth Kenneth, who concluded a one-week visit in that country where he met with different authorities, including President Joseph Kabila. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The one-week trip the executive director of Human Rights Watch has concluded here on Wednesday was an opportunity for him to see and understand the human rights situation in this country. During his stay here, Rolf Kennett traveled around the capital city, Kinshasa, in the eastern city of Goma in the North Kivu province. He met with senior government officials, including President Joseph Kabila, political party leaders, activists, and victims of human rights abuses. 
The visit of the head of human rights watch has come indeed three months before the opening of a series of elections to be held here. Ralph Kennett believes there are serious human rights problems to be addressed. I came here to address two big problems. One is the, the increase in violence and political arrests in the context of the forthcoming elections. And the second was the, the ongoing problem of impunity, particularly in the eastern part of the country, where there continue to be quite serious war crimes, everything from killings to rapes, um, by both um, government forces sometimes and by the proliferation of armed rebel groups that exist in the eastern Congo. And indeed, during the meeting between Rolf Kennett and President Joseph Kabila, so many points were dealt with, including people's rights in democracy and the trouble in question of Mr. President to step down at the end of his last term. Once more, Human Rights Watch Executive Director Rolf Kennett explains. We've talked first of all about the importance of respecting uh, basic liberties, especially in the course of an election. And so the, the right to hold a demonstration, the right to criticize the president. Um, these are all essential rights to be respected. And he accepted that in principle, although warned against um, allowing anarchy to exist. And we discussed, you know, the, the ordinary tumult of a democracy versus the violence of anarchy and, and I urged him to maintain a broad sense of democracy that permits um, vigorous protests and even demonstrations um, without treating that as anarchy. That's just what democracy is about. One of the big questions in this country is whether the president will accept the constitutional limit and step down after his two terms in office and um, in, in um, late 2016. And we had a very frank conversation with him about his opportunity to play a truly historic role um, for his country in being the first president to step down at the end of his two terms for another elected president. And that would be um, truly the role of a statesman to, to take that step. Um, on the other hand, there are some who are saying, oh, maybe he should hang on for another year or two, um, even though that would inevitably give rise to, to many demonstrations and protests. We would probably see more violence of the sort that we saw this past January, and it's likely to diminish his reputation and actually undermine the stability of the country that he claims to be so concerned about. So the president uh, made clear he hasn't made up his mind one way or the other. We shouldn't assume anything. But he heard us out. Um, we had a, a cordial, honest conversation about the importance of respecting constitutional limits and, and really playing the statesman role to contribute to the historical um, emergence of, of democracy in Congo and, and perhaps being the first president who really steps down in favor of another. The Visit Human Rights Executive Director has concluded here on Wednesday, started last week on July 15th. Ralph Kennett left this country this Thursday. Jean-Noël Bamwezi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Moving on, the African Union should prioritize toppling Boko Haram to stop the growing attacks on Nigeria and neighboring countries. This is according to independent political analyst Levi Kabwato. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari is meeting with Barack Obama in Washington earlier this week to talk about assistance against the insurgents reportedly yielded no results because of United States law which prohibits sending weapons to countries failing to tackle rights abusers. Kabwako says publicizing continuing efforts to topple Haram is strengthening the extremists as they are media savvy. The analyst elaborates. President Buhari is under immense pressure to be 
actually doing something to deal with Boko Haram in his country. He's just recently gotten into power, and so he needs to inspire that confidence uh, amongst not only the people of Nigeria, but uh, people around the world, that he's doing something about it. So the publicity is mostly just to inspire that confidence and to tell and uh, warn people that uh, there is something that is happening, unlike during the time the predecessor was in power. So what can he basically do to make sure that he's a step ahead of this insurgent? Well, uh, Buhari is a military uh, man. He has led uh, Nigeria uh, before. So I think uh, he definitely is wise to the fact that there is some harm in uh, detailing all your strategies out uh, to the enemy. We know for sure that uh, Boko Haram is a very uh, tech-savvy and uh, media-savvy outfit, as it were. So they would also be uh, aware of that uh, in the Buhari administration. So I think the information uh, that is being given out has been carefully crafted and is designed to appeal to the broader masses in Nigeria and uh, beyond Nigeria, and also to sort of warn uh, Boko Haram, as it were, that something is being done and that they will be defeated. It's quite important for Buhari to do this because he needs to be seen to be dealing decisively with Boko Haram and also he needs to communicate directly to Boko Haram that he's coming uh, after them. Is it about being seen to be doing something or it's about ensuring that they topple the reign of the Boko Haram? It's a bit of both, actually. This is not something, certainly, that you can deal with overnight, as it were. It's not an easy matter. It's an extremely complex uh, military exercise. If you look around the world or in the world other countries are involved in, in particular, say, the U.S. in Afghanistan or in Iraq, you tend to see that military warfare tends to be protracted and tends to take uh, a lot of time. So it's uh, a dual approach uh, that I'm seeing coming from uh, President Buhari, that in the one breath he wants to be seen to be doing something, and in the other he perhaps is actually doing something that would then uh, make him live up to uh, his words. You have to understand that there is immense expectation from the people of Nigeria, from the people of uh, Africa, and from the rest of the world as well for Buhari to deliver on this promise and commitment uh, to deal uh, with uh, uh, with Boko Haram. President Buhari's visit to Washington seemed to have yielded no results because of a United States law that prohibits sending weapons to countries that fail to tackle rights abuses. What can transpire from this outcome? Well, uh, Buhari did mention to Obama that uh, that kind of a policy is uh, harming or will, will definitely harm efforts to uh, to deal with Boko Haram. So I think it's something that is definitely uh, being uh, looked at uh, as well. And I think uh, here there has to be some caution that's also exercised. We have seen actually that some of the U.S. Uh, military equipment has ended up being in the wrong hands. So you also need to have a plan, you see President Buhari, on how you ensure that the aid, the military aid that you're receiving from countries like the United States does not end up in Boko Haram, as we have seen elsewhere in Syria, in uh, U.S. equipment uh, ending up in the hands of ISIS, as it were. So I think there is a careful uh, strategy that's being mapped and planned uh, and begin to see uh, some results, whether it's working or not, in the near future. But certainly the visit to Washington by Buhari, you recall that uh, the invitation came almost immediately as he was inaugurated. 
and he's just about uh, just under two months in power at the moment. So the symbolism of Nigeria working uh, with the United States is quite huge. And going back to my previous point, that there is immense expectation, then I think there will be a framework that is designed to deliver results and results that can actually help. Um, and boost uh, the image of Buhari, but more importantly, results that can actually give the Nigerian people and neighboring countries the confidence that uh, Boko Haram is being dealt with. What will happen now that there's a law that is prohibiting them from sending weapons to Nigeria? They will work around it. We have seen there's so much precedent on this. You recall uh, the NATO intervention in Libya, for instance. There are various avenues that can be uh, explored uh, to do this. But as I say, if I were to caution uh, President Buhari, it would be to say, do this in a manner which actually guarantees that sort of uh, ends up in the in the right hands, as it were. And also I think the fact that um, such kind of uh, legislative hindrances exist should also uh, point uh, President Buhari to, to the African continent and begin also to ask what joint efforts can be made, how can they be strengthened, and how can they be consolidated. Because Boko Haram is not just a Nigerian problem, it becomes a very much uh, continental problem uh, as it were. So at AU level, there also needs to be that kind of uh, conversation that's happening. We cannot, as a continent, as an African people, continuously be looking at the United States to deal with uh, some of these problems. That was independent analyst Levi Kabuato talking to Vusian Kosi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. I'm your host tonight, Jazar Rod. The Botswana Court of Appeal this week heard arguments in an appeal against a high court judgment in which the country's government was ordered to provide HIV-positive foreign prisoners with antiretroviral treatment. August last year, two foreign prisoners and the Botswana Network on Ethics, Law and HIV-AIDS, Bonela, succeeded in a high court challenge against the government's policy, refusing to provide hiv positive foreign prisoners with ARVs. Cindy Kaleme is the director for Bonela. This case started two years ago with um, us as Bonela challenging government's policy that denies foreign prisoners access to antiretroviral treatment. The case has been ongoing now for a very long time. We have had, as you rightly pointed out in your background, that the High Court at some point, it was August 2014, the government to provide antiretroviral treatment to foreign prisoners. 
Unfortunately, the government did not comply with that order, nor did they apply for stay of execution of that judgment. So there has been quite a lot of litigation that is going on around the mm-hmm. same issue. We have heard now after the August 22 judgment, foreign prisoners in their individual capacity now suing government for contempt. So we heard about two cases in court that are all now have been referred to the Court of Appeal. In both cases, one which was where government was appealing the judgment of 22nd August, and one where a certain gift Mwali had taken government to court for contempt for their failure to comply with the August 22 judgment. So these cases were both hedged, and basically both sides, in terms of government, they submitted their arguments why they think that the court should not allow for foreign prisoners to be given antiretroviral treatment, basically framing their argument around cost. However, the court, in its wisdom, also asked questions around what the actual cost would be because the government has not succeeded in providing that information. Say this is how much it will cost the government. Cindy, a lot of civil society organizations were, you know, up in arms around this particular news when it did come out. And, of course, as you've rightfully noted, that um, the government is refusing um, foreign nationals' ARVs and um, they're talking about costs. But um, a lot of people are saying this this is a human rights issue. What are your thoughts around that? Yes, the other thing that the government failed to provide was justification for limiting the right of foreign prisoners on the Mm. basis of cost. So whenever you limit somebody's rights, especially within the framework of the law, which they also failed to provide for, you ought to provide enough justification because we are talking about the right to life. If you deny access to antiretroviral treatment, in many ways you are affecting the person's right to life. Mm. So it is against this background that the government in its wisdom really to a greater extent failed to convince the court that the issue of cost should be upheld mm. based on the existing legal framework. Are you optimistic, so Cindy, are, that everything will go in your favor? Has, judgment has been reserved. We haven't been told about when the judgment is going to come out. But we remain optimistic that the court will really uphold the rights of foreign prisoners in this case. That's Cindy Kalema, Director for the Botswana Network on Ethics, Law and HIV-AIDS, Bonella, on the line from Gaborone's Botswana to Zikonamizo. Heading up to the news headlines with Onele and um, with cautious optimism. Africa's only remaining polio endemic country, Nigeria, today marks a year without any new polio cases recorded. According to Rotary International, a humanitarian organization, this is a tremendous achievement as the world could soon see a polio-free Africa. Rotary has been a leader in the fight to eradicate polio since 1985. To find out more what the achievement means for Nigeria and the region, Jane Matebula spoke to Rotary's National Polio Plus Chair, Dr. Abdurrahman Tunji Funsho. There's cause of optimism. The first reason being that uh, we are not certain that today is going to be a milestone until, you know, all the stool samples that are pending in the labs are certified, you know, uh, polio-free. But right now, I think we have cause to commemorate one year until that particular point in time. So it's cause of celebration, but like you said, cause of optimism, because it is just one year of sudden transmission. We still need another two years of a lot of hard work to sustain the gains we have made 
by continuing routine immunization, strengthening it, ensuring we have a robust surveillance system. At the same time, making sure that our supplementary immunization activities continue at a very high level of quality. So basically, this does not necessarily mean that Nigeria can today be declared polio-free? No, no, not at all. I mean, the, the criteria for being declared polio-free is the stopping of the wild polio transmission after three years. This is just uh, a milestone of uh, the WHO removing Nigeria from the list of polio endemic countries. The world will not be left with just Pakistan and Afghanistan. So this one year is just a milestone of removing Nigeria from the list of polio endemic countries. It does not make us polio-free. We still remain one of those countries that are not polio-free until 2017 with the proviso that we maintain a robust surveillance system so that we can pick up any case of polio. We strengthen routine immunization so that uh, more and more children are covered so that we have a high level of herd immunity and finally to have uh, high-quality supplementary immunization activities throughout this period of time through 2017. And of course, this one-year milestone is something to be celebrated. What does it mean for Nigeria and the entire region? It's a great progress. Number one, it gives us the confidence that the systems that we have put in place together this far are working and we can continue to build on them to ensure that we continue to sustain a polio-free environment. In other words, uh, that no more transmission of uh, the wild polio virus you know, takes place. The second thing is that uh, we give it to a focused partner, particularly the government at the federal and state levels, to continue their commitment to ensure that um, all the advocacy efforts, all the funding that are needed to continue to sustain the gains we have made are not uh, relaxed at all. We will continue to cover more children and continue to ensure that the environment is free of the wild polio virus. Finally, Mr. Funshaw, now there have been reports of sporadic polio cases in some neighboring countries such as Cameroon. If you could reflect on these um, polio cases that have been reported in neighboring countries with regards to the reasons, is it because Nigeria is still a threat in the region? Well, those have been put under control. Basically, Cameroon and I believe Equatorial Guinea. We have had synchronizing activities between Nigeria and Cameroon and also Nigeria and Equatorial Guinea to ensure that the level of immunity is high in those communities. And also, as far as Cameroon is concerned, we have permanent health teams at the borders to ensure that children coming in and going out, you know, are given the uh, oral polio vaccine, such that there would not be. Uh, transmission within countries. And there has not been any case of uh, uh, polio that was exported, you know, from Nigeria into Cameroon or Equatorial Guinea in several months now. So uh, we don't see that, you know, as a major problem. That's Dr. Abdul Rahman Tunji Funsho and Rotary's National Polio Plus Chair in Nigeria on the line from the capital, Lagos, talking to Jane Matabula. Time for the news headlines. Yes In your news headlines, the African Union to prioritize toppling Boko Haram to stop the growing attacks on Nigeria and neighboring countries. Security is heightened in northern Cameroon following Wednesday's a double suicide bombing attack and a new set of rules to prevent disruption in South Africa's parliament is to be tabled next week. Channel Africa News. Somewhere.
Okay, this is Africa Digest. I am Jazz Alright. If you just tuned in, welcome to the show. Human Rights Watch has released a new report documenting scores of killings, rapes and widespread burning and pillage of civilian property by South Sudanese government forces and allied fighters during a military offensive in Unity State. The rights group says the deliberate attacks on civilians and civilian property during the offensive between April and June 2015 amount to war crimes and the killings and rapes may also constitute crimes against humanity. The 42-page report titled They Burnt It All, Destruction of Villages, Killings and Sexual Violence in South Sudan's Unity State is based on more than 170 interviews in June and July with survivors and witnesses. More on the findings from Human Rights Watch researcher Leslie Lefko. I mean, this report basically covers a South Sudan government offensive in one uh, particular state, Unity State, Mm. that started in early May and has been continuing through June and into early July. And it was a two-pronged offensive in the northern part of the state and the southern part of the state. And what we found, based on several weeks of research and, and more than 170 interviews with displaced persons, was that the government forces and allied militiamen committed horrendous abuses against civilians. There was actually very little fighting between the government and rebel forces in these villages and towns. There was mostly attacks on civilians, killings of people even sometimes when they were trying to run away and flee into the swamps or into the river beds. Uh, Rape of women was a particularly shocking pattern that we found in, in the research. And then widespread burnings and destruction, really Mm. clearly deliberate burnings and destruction of villages, apparently to stop people from returning to Mm. their homes. Well, painting a very gruesome picture there. Now, we understand that um, the report in itself stems from around uh, 170 interviews that were done uh, with survivors as well as witnesses. Now, if you can share uh, some of the stories um, that uh, these survivors and these witnesses have shared with you uh, during these, uh, these interviews. Yeah, I mean, we... We interviewed people in two different places, Mm. so in in a government town called Bentiu, a government-controlled town, and then in another location quite far away. So we interviewed people, you know, in very different locations, completely independently. And most of the people we spoke to were women, Mm. because many of the men fled when the attack started, uh, because they were afraid they might be killed. And it was women and children who really disproportionately suffered the brunt of these attacks. So, for example, you know, I interviewed dozens of women myself who, you know, women who with, with sometimes with three or four children or six children who were fleeing. There was a woman who saw two of her children, they ended up drowning in the river because they fled in such a panic, you mm-hmm. know, and she couldn't even keep track of them and she was carrying some. And these people fled with nothing because the attacks came quite suddenly. And sometimes when they returned to their villages after the attacks were over, you know, to try and see if they could salvage food or, you know, any of their livestock or any other items, everything was burned. And so many of these people are now completely destitute. Mm. Uh, and living basically on on the charity of of people in in villages and in the town. Lizzie, what are some of the recommendations that, I mean, come out from the report in terms of really mending what's been broken at this time? 
Well, there are three key points that we uh, believe would help to stop some of the horrific abuses that are happening in South Sudan. Number one is we've been pushing, as have many other organizations, for an arms embargo, that the UN Security Mm. Council should pass an arms embargo on South Sudan. It's clear that both the warring parties, and I should add that although this offensive was really clearly the responsibility of government forces, we've also documented serious crimes by rebel forces in the past, and both sides have committed horrendous attacks on civilians, and and therefore we think an arms embargo is really necessary. Um, Secondly is sanctions, individual sanctions on the leaders, the senior commanders and political leaders who are organizing and planning and ordering these kinds of of abuses or not doing enough to stop them, Mm. despite the clear evidence that they're happening. And third is really the urgent need for a clear path for justice and accountability. This is something that South Sudanese uh, people and organizations have been calling out for months now. Uh, And there's been a lot of delays and stalling Mm -hmm. by key international actors, including the African Union, I must say, uh, who have not released a, a very important report by their commission of inquiry into the violations. And we are pushing for that report to be released and for all of those governments and institutions concerned by what's happening in South Sudan to really pull together to set up a a hybrid court uh, or find some other mechanism for justice uh, as quickly as possible. Leslie Lefko, Human Rights Watch Research on the line from Amsterdam, talking to Zikonamiso. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Crude oil prices are half of what they were a year ago, and while this means significant losses in revenue for some oil-exporting countries, consumers should be paying less for fuel and in turn have more money to spend. A new paper published by the International Monetary Fund suggests that the highest spending will ultimately be good for global growth. More from Asim Hussain, co-author and deputy director in the Middle East and Central Asia Department of the IMF. So oil prices or the decline in oil prices is uh, certainly benefiting consumers, but not as much as you might have uh, thought initially and certainly not as much as I initially thought. Even though crude oil prices fell by about half between, say, June of last year and and by the end of the year, early this year, retail prices of uh, fuel prices on average globally have fallen by half as much, so by about a quarter. Now, the extent to which retail prices have fallen uh, varies a lot across countries and across regions of the world. Uh, and the reason for it is that in many countries, retail prices are regulated. And in fact, in many countries, retail prices are fixed. So they don't change when world oil prices change. For example, on average in Europe, this pass-through, we call it, uh, the extent to which retail prices change in response to changes in international crude oil prices, um, this pass-through in Europe has been rather higher this time around. So between, say, the middle of last year and the end of the year, uh, the pass-through was about 80% in Europe. In um, the Americas, North and South America combined, and in Asia, it was about half. 
So, of course, it depends on the degree of this pass-through, right? The more pass-through there is, the more the consumer benefits. The second way the consumer benefits are part of how much what the consumer does with this benefit depends on what the consumer thinks uh, uh, whether this is a permanent or a temporary decline. So if it's a temporary decline, chances are you're not going to alter your spending patterns uh, very much. But if you think that this is permanent, then chances are that you will spend on other things because you're richer, um, effectively. So that matters. And then the third thing that matters in terms of how you respond is what your sort of initial conditions are, if you will. And what do I mean by initial conditions? What I mean is how indebted you are, for example. So if you as a consumer are overextended, you've got very high debts on your credit card, on your mortgage, etc. When you get some unexpected increase effectively in your income, then you might use that increase to pay down some of your debt. So it won't necessarily translate into more spending. But it will translate into uh, what we call a repaired balance sheet. And, and to the extent that this balance sheet repair happens faster than it would in the absence of the oil price decline, eventually consumers are going to be ready to start spending sooner than they otherwise would. It just means that you won't get that spending right away. It'll just take a little bit longer to come. And so what is at the root uh, of this uh, dramatic uh, drop in oil over the past year, year and a half, uh, is it really about a sudden increase in supply or is it um, more about a, a changing consumer market? So this is a classic $64 question in my opinion. So let me go back a little bit, right? We've had, let me, there are two big shocks in oil in the, in the past, one in the not-so-distant past and one in the more distant past. So first, there was a big drop in oil prices in 2008. That came along with the coming of the global financial crisis. That one was clearly all about demand. As global demand for everything, including oil, dropped, oil prices dropped very, very fast, a, a similar order of magnitude. Then there was another big oil price drop, and this was the mid-1980s. And at the time, what was happening is OPEC and Saudi Arabia in particular had been cutting back production in the years running up to the mid-1980s in an effort to try and keep uh, a sort of a bottom on oil prices. Oil prices were tending to decline, and, and these guys were cutting back production to keep oil prices from declining more. And then in the mid-1980s, they had cut to such low levels of production that they couldn't sustain it anymore, and they just decided, fine, we're going to just go back to producing what we used to, what we're capable of producing. And as a result, oil prices collapsed. That was clearly a supply-induced oil price shock. This time around, it's both. But we've looked at this pretty carefully, and in our assessment, more supply than demand. So in other words, the, the shale oil revolution, the advent of better technologies and, and the spread of those better technologies in order to be able to extract oil more cheaply than before has really mattered. So it's now less costly to produce that oil and that accounted for more than half of the, the decline in our estimation of the oil price that you've seen over the past year. Demand also was a factor. So especially in the second half of 2014, in many parts of the world, global economic indicators were coming in um, much weaker than had been expected. And that certainly also impacted oil prices. Now, the two things 
have a very different impact on activity. So to the extent that you have supply shocks, you know, when you find new technologies and um, new uh, sources of oil, such as shale, those are yours forever. Um, you don't give those back. But the demand side, the weakness that we saw in 2014, part of that is already starting to go away, but certainly over time that will go away. So that part will not be permanent. Um, and interestingly, that's sort of what we see in futures markets for crude oil. So what futures markets tell us is that in the next three, four years, about half, a little less than half of the oil price drop will be given back. In other words, oil prices will rise to something like the mid-70s per barrel. Is it, but 70s being still much lower than they were two years ago. If lower oil prices are expected to continue, how are the oil exporting countries expected to sort of compensate for all this lost revenue on the long term? So that's, I I think, exactly the challenge that oil exporting countries are facing. Because this change in in the oil price environment is not something that will go away anytime soon, they do have to adjust to the new reality. Now, let me preface all of this first by saying that what we've learned, if nothing else, over the past year is oil prices are highly uncertain. But having said that, oil-producing countries need to adjust to this new reality. Now, fortunately, many have, during the past, whatever, 10 years of the oil boom, accumulated substantial buffers. So they have large amounts of foreign exchange, many of them in in sovereign wealth funds, many of them in the form of of central bank reserves and fiscal reserves. But nevertheless, they, they have these very large buffers. So that buys them time to adjust. But adjust, they will need to. What can they do? Well, first, a lot of their revenue comes from oil or oil-related industries. They should look to diversify that. So maybe, you know, many of them are considering or will need to consider forms of, of either corporate income taxation or value-added tax and so on, which many of them either don't have or have at very low levels. That was Asim Hussain, co-author and deputy director in the Middle East and Central Asia Department of the International Monetary Fund, talking to the IMF's Bruce Edwards. Time for our economic report. Here is the man on the money with Sunny Matibula. Thanks, Jazar. The South African Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee has hiked uh, lending rates for the first time in a year. The repo rate will increase slightly by 25 basis points to 6%. Reserve Bank Governor Lisita Khanyaho says the hike is in anticipation of the commencement of a tightening cycle in the United States, which could represent a significant risk to inflation due to a weaker end. Our attitude and our approach is not to say the U.S. is moving, therefore we are moving. Our approach is when the U.S. moves, what are the implications for the economic outlook in South Africa? And as such, we then respond to, uh, we, we, respond, uh, we respond to that. The SADC region has made significant improvements in the number of people integrated into the financial system. However, South Africa's finance minister, Tlantlanene, says financial exclusion remains unacceptably high. He was addressing a SADC financial inclusion in Daba 
in Senten, north of Johannesburg, here in South Africa. The improvements in our economies have not always adequately translated into sufficient opportunities for poor and low-income households to improve their standards. It is therefore important that as we pursue development in our respective countries, we ensure that we create a fully inclusive economic environment in which all people can participate in and derive benefit from it. Job cuts at spillmaker Accelerometal South Africa are on the cards unless government quickly intervenes. Accelerometal has requested government to impose still tariff protection to counter cheap Chinese imports. Chief Executive Paul Oflaharty says they are in a survival mode. He says unless the state intervenes, the spillmaker will be forced to cut jobs at its Thunderbell Park operations, which uh, employs about 1,200 people. And Algeria will trim spending in its 2015 budget by 1.35% as it expects energy earnings to fall by 50% due to a slump in oil prices. Oil and gas account for 95% of Algeria's exports. Energy revenues make up to 60% of the budget. The government expects economic growth outside of the hydrocarbon sector to reach 5.1%, which is unchanged from an initial forecast announced earlier this year. And BP settlement of the Deepwater Horizon blowout and its cost reduction efforts should support its credit ratios to the end of 2016. Ratings agency Standard & Poor's revised its outlook on the oil and gas measure to stable from negative. S&P affirmed its highest A1 rating on BP's short-term credit and A on its long-term issue. Standard & Poor's says... BP's $18.7 billion oil leak settlement reduces the uncertainty around the upper limit of possible claims. And that's your economics news. Thanks for joining us in your sports update. I'm Tami Kuza. Let's start with cycling, where South Africa's cycling team, MTN Kubega, has confirmed that South African climber Louis Menges has abandoned the Tour de France this morning. According to the team statement, 23-year-old fell ill yesterday and battled through the 17th stage but finished in a lot of pain. He was taken straight to hospital and he will spend another night in hospital for further observation. And according to team doctor, Dr. Gerard van Zaidman says that Menges is suffering from inflammation of the stomach and the intestine that is caused by bacteria from food poisoning or stress. Now in rugby, the South African Springbok rugby team has had a make an injury and forced change to the team for Saturday's rugby championship match against New Zealand with the uncapped Leonema Boy 
coming in for J.P. Peterson. Peterson strained his hamstring during yesterday's training session and will not be available to face the All Blacks. As a result, Conal Hendricks will start at right wing with Mapue coming onto the bench. Springbok coach Kemea says that his team will need to have a good start on Saturday if they are to beat New Zealand for the second consecutive time. Yeah, I think against the All Blacks it's always very, very important to have a good start. I think last year we had probably one of the best starts ever. Um, you know, they came back, they always come back right at the end because the fitness levels is uh, probably superior. Uh, that's one aspect I'm not happy with and we don't have a lot of time before the World Cup and that's why the plan is always to rotate. The other guys stay behind even when we went to Australia. The guys that stay behind did a lot of fitness and that's going to be the same of guys I left out. And it looks like FIFA story is far from over. In football, Ban Ki-moon's special advisor on sport, Wilfred, Wilfred Lemke, has defended ongoing FIFA president, Sir Blatter, saying that he was not corrupt and was pushing through deeper reforms of world soccer governing body that he was getting credit for. Lemke says Blatter is not corrupt. Now he's not a victim. He has his responsibility and he made some very bad mistakes because he didn't control where money went and what people did. I'm totally convinced that he's not corrupt. Lemke says that reforms should include limiting the terms of top FIFA officials and changing the bidding process for World Cup host countries to ensure a balance of power between different continents, but most of all, FIFA needed transparency. There must be a total change in the minds of, of all the responsible people. It should be all in total transparency. So we, we have to focus this on the first. And then there have to be other reforms like a time period that people can work in the top uh, functions of uh, FIFA. And now back home, South Africans have been starved of football action with our local Premier Soccer League still in its season break. However, this will not be for long, especially for people in Cape Town, as they prepare to host the inaugural Cape Town Cup, which will feature two European giants in the form of Sporting Lisbon of Portugal and Crystal Palace and two local teams host Ice Cape Town and Supersport United. Tournament director Justin Simpson has more. We obviously got four teams involved. There's two international teams and two local teams. The two international teams are Crystal Palace, which, um, as I'm pretty sure everyone knows, is the English Premier League team, finished 10th in the league, um, and very excited to have Alan Pardew and his team out here. And then the other team is Sporting um, Club de Portugal, uh, which probably most of our fans know is Sporting Lisbon, but they don't want to call that, so let's call them Sporting. Um, and as we know, they won their cup competition in um, the Portuguese league and then came third in the league table. Palace has so far confirmed their arrival and manager of the side that came 10th in the last season's Premier League has brought a full-strength side and are expecting a surprise new signing to be linking up with the team at a later stage. Their full squad's out. Phil Alexander is the CEO of Crystal Palace. The whole team arrived with the exception of uh, Phil who's only coming tomorrow um, because he's actually signing some late um, additions to the team. And it's, the news that we're getting is that he's actually arriving with one of those new signings tomorrow. 
And on basketball, Manning Pacquiao will help promote the Philippines B to host the 2019 Basketball World Cup tournament. The 36-year-old Pacquiao says that he will travel to Japan next month when the International Basketball Association will announce the name of the host country. The basketball crazy Philippines qualified for last year's World Cup tournament in Spain and finished 21st. And according to FIBA website, the country will face stiff competition from China as host of the 2019 event. And finally, in golf, three top European players are expected to be among the contenders for the Senior Open Championship presented by Rolex. Colin Montgomery, Miguel Angel Yeminez and defending champion Bernard Langer face a star-studded field at Sunningdale. Mark Tompkins, together with Nick Dye reports. Montgomery has won three senior majors, including the USPGA earlier this year. It's an impressive new lease of life since turning 50, and given his success rate down the road on a similar course at Wentworth, it's no surprise to know he's the man players feel they have to beat. Langer did beat him by 13 strokes at Royal Porth Call last year, and he's chasing a hat-trick of senior Open titles. He showed his well-being at St Andrews last week, while Jimenez, who's still contending superbly against the younger players on the European tour, has opted to play rather than at his beloved event in Switzerland, so surely he poses a threat. That said, players of the calibre of US Senior Open winner Jeff Maggot, Fred Couples, Tom Lehman, Mark O'Meara, and the man who made his St Andrews farewell last week, Tom Watson, could all have a major say in the outcome. And let's leave it there for now. That's your sports on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and back to Jaza Rad. Tommy Kluza there with your sports report. He'll be back in one hour from now for the latest. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories this hour, the case of the Chadian dictator postponed at the ICC. An analyst says the AU should prioritize the toppling of Boko Haram in economics, Algeria to trim spending in its 2015 budget by 1 to 3.5%. Sports-wise, South Africa's Louis Mankies abandons the Tour de France due to illness. That wraps up Africa Digest for today from myself, Jazar Rod, producer Luyanda Maome and technical producer Rev Ibrahim. The rest of the Africa Digest theme, thank you for listening. Any comments you can email at, at in, uh, you can email us, info at channelafrica.co.za, SMS plus 27796957930 or on Twitter at channelafrica1. Take us to Top of the Hour is Nomvula by Nati on Channel Africa.